Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. As we celebrate our nation's independence, it's an important time to look at where we've come from and where we're going. Clearly, God has watched over and blessed our country greatly in the past, though we certainly had some experiences of shared trials and tribulations. We know from Scripture that all those trials and tribulations can be used by God in the lives of those who follow Jesus in order to build perseverance, improving character, and hope, according to Romans 5. And we've seen those qualities be developed in our leaders down through the centuries. We've been sustained and grown as a nation because of how they've led us. But what happens to a nation who turns away from God? And have we become that nation? Today, we'll review our foundation, which gives us a glimpse of where we've been in the past, as well as where we're going to go in the future. I'm Debbie Blank, grateful today and every day for our country, our freedom, and our Christian heritage. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. How biblically illiterate are Americans today? Over the last several decades, revisionist historians have been attempting to debunk or at least minimize the biblical background of the founding of America. And unfortunately, they've had some success. Why? Because most people have become unfamiliar with both the true history of our founders and with the Bible itself. But at the time of our founders, everyone really knew the Bible. It was so infused in most hearts and lives that it naturally spilled over into our founding. Just read our documents and the historical record of the founders' debates, and it becomes very clear. So it makes sense that if we want to keep the freedoms that seem to be slipping through our fingers, we must go back and stand on the profound influence of God and the Bible as the very foundation of our country. So let's go back to the colonial times. First of all, with Christopher Columbus. By all accounts, he was a devout Catholic. He set out to find a faster route to India. And of course, he wanted to find gold and glory, but he also desired to convert pagans to Christianity along the way. The New England pilgrims later, they came here to enjoy freedom of religion apart from the Church of England. In the early years of what later became the United States, Christian religious groups played such an influential role in each of the British colonies that they attempted to enforce strict religious observances through their governments and their local town rules. In other words, the laws that we live by in this country. Pretty much all of our laws early on were based on Scripture. Nine out of 13 British colonies had official or at least established churches, which required all office holders to be Christians, but not just say they're Christians. They needed to profess a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then if you look at the articles of Virginia's 1610 legal code, they had a mandate to require regular church attendance for everyone and to proclaim that anyone who speaks impiously against the Trinity or who blasphemes God's name will be put to death. Now that's a pretty severe punishment which shows how strongly they took their faith in Jesus Christ and how strongly they lived for God in those early days. Early colonial laws and constitutions that we're familiar with 
such as the Mayflower Compact, the Fundamental Order of Connecticut, or maybe the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, they're all filled with such language and in some cases even biblical text to show why they're saying what they're saying. And they even required back then the Sabbath be an intense day of religious activity and rest so that people could be focusing on God. Certain leaders in Boston would even parade the street and oblige everyone to go to church on pain of being put in stokes or otherwise confined. One observer wrote in 1968 that few communities openly tolerated travel, drinking, gambling, or blood sports on Sunday. And we know by growing up when we did that almost everything was closed on Sunday. Now everything's open and our kids are even involved in sports activities that require people not to be able to attend church when they would normally attend church. So all of these things, going back to Scripture and what the Bible meant to these people, it meant so much to them to practice their faith according to their own conscience, according to the Word of God, faithfully and freely, that they got on rickety boats and came across a huge ocean to a land that was somewhat uncivilized. They didn't know what was going to be there for them, but it meant so much to them that that's what they braved. So some of these things that might seem a little intolerant to us that you've read about the requirements of the law, that some of these things were written into the law based on the Bible, we need to remember that these were communities of faith that came together so that they could worship, so that they could be in that kind of situation. So they were essentially disciplining their own flock And most people were of the same mind. And many of them died along the way because they so believed in this. They weren't living this life because they were forced to. They did it because they knew their God. They wanted to walk with him. They wanted to honor him and do everything right as they started this new nation. So clearly our nation was founded by these people who were great Christians with fabulous character and faith and who understood their God and his word. But there are some people, as you said, the revisionists, who might say that, well, we really weren't founded then. We weren't founded until the American Revolution or the time of the writing of the Constitution. Okay, so let's look at the people of those days to see what they believed. In 1776, every European American, with the exception of about 2,500 Jews, identified himself or herself as a Christian. And of those, 98% of the colonials were Protestants, with only 1.9% being Roman Catholics. We were founded on Protestant biblical principles. That's our nation. And we can see that. John Adams and John Hancock, who obviously were signers of the Declaration of Independence, and John Adams was a later president, they both said, we recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. Benjamin Franklin said in his 1949 plan of education for the public schools in Pennsylvania, he insisted that schools teach, quote, the excellency of the Christian religion above all others, ancient or modern, end quote. So he insisted that our children needed to be raised on Christian principles and on the word of God so they would follow in the footsteps of their parents. Now consider our children today. They're being raised on no Christian principles in schools. As a matter of fact, anti-biblical, anti-Christian principles. 
Scholars will tell you that Benjamin Franklin was one of the least religious founding fathers in our history, and yet it's interesting to note that he gave a statement at a very critical point in time during the Constitutional Convention where people were getting frustrated and some people were starting to leave, and he gave this statement nine sentences long, encouraging people and using scriptural references 13 times in the nine sentences. So this was something that just naturally flowed from him. He quoted from Job, twice from the book of James, Matthew, Luke, three times from Psalms, Daniel, Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, and Chronicles. This is someone who was not very religious. <laughs> so it, it made quite an impression and, and got people back on track during that critical time in our founding. Back then, they didn't have writers to write their material. They didn't have computers to look up all those verses. The only reason he would have used those verses is if he knew them himself, if he had lived them out. People might not say he was religious, but he followed the truth of God's word, as we should too. Alexander Hamilton, he said the Christian Constitutional Society, its objectives were first, the support of Christian religion, and second, the support of the United States. So these founding fathers put Christ-centered belief before the United States because they knew unless the Lord builds the house of the United States, their labors were in vain. It reminds me of Matthew 6.33. They decided to seek first the kingdom of God. So that was the first priority, was the kingdom of God, and then all those things would be added. So the government was subordinate to the kingdom of God. And George Washington understood that. He said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. That's our first president. And he was chosen to be president because of his military strength and his faith in Jesus Christ. Even Thomas Jefferson, who's been considered to be kind of a wishy-washy Christian, said, I'm a real Christian. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrine of Jesus. Now, we can't even mention the name of Jesus in our Congress anymore. And yet these congressional leaders back then and presidents consistently use the name of Jesus and the truth of the word of God. James Madison said, we stake the future of all our political institutions upon our capacity to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. He's the one who proposed at the Constitutional Convention of 1787 that the three branches of government would be determined based on Isaiah 33:22, which reads, For the Lord is our judge, that's your judicial system, the Lord is our lawgiver, that's a legislative group, and the Lord is our king, that's our president. So he recommended it, and it has worked well down for these last several hundred years. We have a history, a strong history, from the time of Christopher Columbus through our founding Quakers and pilgrims who came in the early 1600s, all the way up through our Constitutional Convention, our Congress, our Revolutionary War, that all of those leaders founded this nation on their belief in Jesus Christ, on biblical scripture and biblical ideals. So the very structure of our government is a witness to the Word of God. And when you mention the Ten Commandments and how that would be what would sustain us, and then we see what we've done with the Ten Commandments and taken the Ten Commandments out of the schools, out of most public places, and yet when we're thinking of the judiciary branch, 
it still exists on the walls of the Supreme Court building of the United States of America. And on many other buildings in Washington, D.C. And we know from the Bible that the word of God will not return void without accomplishing God's purpose. So people do see it. So what will happen if we abandon God? You see, if we're founded on Christian principles, and we were, and God used those principles to build a successful nation, what happens if we abandon those principles and abandon God? Well, actually, the founding fathers warned us against that. John Adams said in a letter, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And by the way, when they talked about religious people, they were specifically talking about Christians because virtually everyone at that time was a Protestant Christian. So he recognized that our country wouldn't survive if we didn't have morality and the religion of Jesus Christ. Charles Carroll, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, wrote, Without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. They, therefore, who are decrying the Christian religion, whose morality is so sublime and pure, are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the best scrutiny for the duration of a free government. Now, did you catch that? Undermining the solid foundation of morals. It is our Christian foundation that gives us our morals, that lays the plumb line of truth and righteousness and how we should live. So when we take God out of our culture, we're taking morality out of our culture. And we're seeing that in the sexualization of our children. We're seeing it in entertainment. We're seeing it in the attitude of our politicians. Right now, what everyone wants to do seems right in their own eyes. They can do it because we have no plumb line for morals because we've taken God out of the schools. We did that when we took prayer out in the early 60s, and then we took Bible out of the schools in the 60s. You said about the Ten Commandments that were taken down from pretty much most of the government places around the country, if not all. The only place I can think of besides the structures we were talking about in Washington, D.C., is our currency that says, in God we trust. But other than that, we're not allowed to pray in Jesus' names in most public venues. We're chastised. If we speak about what scripture says that goes against our cultural norms, we are criticized if we try and bring Christianity or Christian beliefs into the marketplace. I even read about a young man who wrote in his senior year that there are two sexes, male and female, and they denied him walking in his graduation because he said that. So we're losing our freedoms of speech and our freedoms of religion even though they're part of the Constitution. But when the government chooses to take them away, it's hard to get them back. And that's where we are right now. And freedom is what we celebrate. When we celebrate our independence in this country, we're celebrating that liberty and that freedom that's so precious, that's so important. And when we talk about a moral people and how that's so crucial to that kind of freedom, it's because a moral people will be self-disciplined and self-governing by the morals that are inculcated through their faith. And therefore, they don't need an oppressive government to rule over them to keep the peace because they govern themselves and each other quite well. So that's where the freedom lies. The Bible talks about freedom and the freedom that we can have in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of thing that's really critical to what we celebrate today. Another founding father, Benjamin Franklin, 
said, I firmly believe this, without his concurring aid, and that's God's, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. I thought that was a great statement because we know what happened to the Tower of Babel. God scattered all the people when they tried to reach God. So he's warning us right there that we will not succeed if we don't follow God. Benjamin Rush, who was a physician and a signer of the Declaration of Independence, said, the only foundation for a republic is to be laid in religion, in other words, Christianity. Without that, there can be no liberty that you were just talking about. And liberty is the object and life of all Republican governments. That didn't mean Republican versus Democrat. It meant that we are a republic. So again, there's another warning. And even George Washington saw the consequences of a nation that turned against God. He said, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principles. We can't last if we don't have morality based on the Bible and if we don't follow religious principles, and we're not right now. And finally, John Dickinson, who was the committee chairman for the Articles of Confederation, wrote, when states lose their liberty, this calamity is generally owing to a decay of virtue. We're losing our liberties, and we're losing them because of a decay of the virtue in our country. That's what's really, really sad, and that's the kind of thing that we need to be praying about. Again, when I talked in the introduction about some of our liberties that seem to be slipping through our fingers, I think we're seeing that happen, and we need to pray that that can be arrested. So we have our founding fathers warning us what would happen if we turned away from God and the Bible. We have history also telling us what happens. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, when explaining why 60 million people had perished under the Marxist regime in Russia, he said, quote, men have forgotten God, and that's why all this has happened, end quote. So we have history also proving what happens when we leave God. And of course, we have the Bible. The Bible is very clear in the Old Testament about what happened to the Israelites when they turned away from God. In Deuteronomy 28:15, God warned them, if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. That's very clear. That's appropriate to us today. If we choose not to follow God's ways and his commandments, curses that he lists, and there are numerous ones of them in Deuteronomy 28, will happen to us. Yes, that was written to Israel, but it's a principle that we can believe too. In 2 Kings 21, 11 through 15, we're told that Manasseh, king of Judah, had done horrible abominations, having done more wickedly than all the Amorites did who were before him, and had also made Judah sin with his idols. Now, he was the leader, the most wicked king of the southern kingdom of Israel, and he made his people sin with his idols. That shows you the responsibility of our leaders, whether it's our president or our mayor or our governor or even the leaders of our church or whomever. We have to watch it because in our case right now, our government is making us sin with the idols of immorality, with the idols of paganism. And we're caught in the middle of it. So what happened to Judah because of Manasseh? Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judea 
that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will wipe Jerusalem out as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they'll become a plunder and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger from the days that their father came out of Egypt even to this day. We know historically that God fulfilled that promise that would happen to the Israelites because of their sin when he destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 BC. Most of the Jews were killed and those who were left were taken into captivity into Babylon because God will not consistently allow people to walk away from his commands, from his truth. There are consequences. We are seeing abominations in our culture, and we are also seeing calamities. Those things go hand in hand, and there's scriptural backing for that. Romans 1, if you want to take a look at that and see what happens when abominations are committed, what kinds of downward spiraling of calamities happen, we could say we're on that slide. Mm, Yes, we can. And the fact is that what we've just read tells us what God said would happen if people turned away from him. What we also see in Matthew 24 is what Jesus says will happen in the future if we continue to turn away from him. And what he says is, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will be. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So Jesus is saying that the future of this world will experience a tribulation that the world has never seen before when we turn away from him. You consider World War I, World War II, the 60 million I just read about that were killed in Russia. None of that compares to what is going to happen in the future. If we turn away from God, well, we've already turned away from God. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to live? How are we going to change? You see, Israel didn't learn from their past. America clearly hasn't learned from our past. We have a biblical past of trusting God, of developing the character of this nation, the foundation of this nation on biblical principles, and we have turned away from God. We've taken all of the vestiges of God out of the public arena. We still have churches. We have the freedom to speak the truth in churches. But if we do it in the public arena, we might likely be sued if we try and live out our faith. People in businesses, in the public schools, elsewhere, cannot speak what they believe, cannot share the gospel, cannot even invite people to church, or they will be sued, fired, or chastised because they're trying to put their morality on other people. In our culture, we have done what we talk about all the time. We've turned good to evil and evil to good from Isaiah 5.20. And God says to us, woe, when we do that. Woe is a warning by God that tragedy is going to happen. Keep in mind the two commandments that Jesus gave us, which boil all the Ten Commandments into two, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's our number one commandment, and yet we're not doing it. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself, and we're not doing that. We're slandering people. We're debasing people. We're murdering our young. We're destroying our youth by what we're training them up to being. 
And how can we love one another when we don't have the foundation of love, which is God? Instead of respecting and understanding that we're made in the image of God, we're putting ourselves as the God of our lives. So what can you and I do? Well, the very first thing we have to do is humble ourselves. We know 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Yes, that was written to Israel at the time their temple was built, but it's a principle that we can stand on. And that is that as God's people, if we repent of our sins, both personally and corporately as a nation, God will hear our prayers. We can read Daniel chapter 9 to see where Daniel repented personally and corporately. So there's a standard there for us to follow. And that repentance comes from recognizing that we have offended God and turned away from him. It's not just a, I'm sorry because our country is going in the way it's going and that these bad things have happened. It's a genuine sorrow that we've turned away from God. That repentance comes with a humble attitude. And then we can choose to follow God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as we are commanded in that first commandment. And you say, well, I've got too many other activities. I've got work and I've got my family and I've got responsibilities with this group or that athletic event or whatever. Well, sure, that's okay. We all have other activities. But we put God first in all of those activities. And that means that we start each day with God. We let God guide us in our hearts and in our actions, in our words and everything we do. Of course, that means reading the Bible because we can't understand who God is or what he wants us to do unless we read the Bible and pray. And then we should speak and act. Thomas Jefferson said, the one thing necessary for evil to prevail is for people of good conscience to remain silent. So what he's saying is we need to act. There's a time to act and a way to act properly and biblically. Edmund Burke is attributed with the statement, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. There again, that's where we need to speak and act for God in the direction he leads us and for his glory. But we're only one. What can we do as one person? Well, look how Daniel changed pagan empires by his actions and his attitudes and his stance to the Lord. And by the way, we will be teaching the book of Daniel starting July 11th. We'd love to have you join us Tuesday evening starting at 7 o'clock. You can visit our website at livingwordministry.org to find out time, location, and all the other information. Think of Paul. He wrote 13 letters. He visited dozens of cities with the gospel message that changed the world, and he was just one person. Constantine, he changed the whole Roman Empire by taking this pagan empire that used to murder Christians, and he made it a Christian world empire. Jeremiah Lanfier, in 1857, he started a weekly prayer meeting in New York. First week, he had six people. Second week's 20. Third week, 40. Finally, they moved to daily meetings because weekly weren't enough. Within a year, this great prayer meeting revival estimated 1 million people added to America's church's roles. That was one person who started a prayer meeting. Imagine what God can do through you. 
one heart totally devoted to him can change this country. Psalm 33:12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If we want to have a blessed nation, we have to return God to being the Lord of the United States. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.